0: to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. We often compare the idea of basic income to the current social safety net we have now, but to really do that in a meaningful way, we have to understand the values and assumptions that went into the safety net that we have today. Because if we want to talk about changing the system, we need to know which of those values and assumptions still hold up and which are relics of the past. So here to help us do that is Almaz Zalecki. She's an associate professor of political science at NYU Shanghai. Welcome, Almaz. Thank you. So to start, why don't you tell us how you first learned about universal basic income?
1: Sure. I was a graduate student in the early 90s searching around for a dissertation topic. And I went to my advisor and told him I wanted to work on economic justice and he um, told me that was probably a little bit broad for a dissertation topic. And he suggested that I think about uh, one particular proposal for addressing income and wealth inequality, and that was a basic income. He handed me a paper that was written by Philippe Perais entitled Why Surfers Should Be Fed. And that was it. I was kind of hooked on the topic after I read that paper.
0: So we'll get into, you know, the merits you see in, in the idea of basic income, but what hooked you when you first started looking into it?
1: Well, it seemed like a way to address some of the shortcomings of capitalism without going overboard into systems of economic or political governance that create other problems, as you know, we had seen in the Soviet Union and in China. Marx is focused on the ownership of the means of production. And so the idea of redistributing the means of production was really the underpinning to uh, most ideas of socialism and communism in the 20th century, but that just didn't seem to mesh with the realities of supply and demand and how they um, push inequalities in certain directions. And so the idea of just redistributing money as opposed to redistributing the means of production made a lot of sense. Now, I knew that there would be some objections to it, and so that was the topic of my dissertation and has been the topic of many years of study since then, particularly around the idea of an unconditional basic income. There's a lot of objections, um, possible objections to the unconditionality of it. So that's what I've been focused on since then.
0: So you've studied our social benefit system in relation to families and gender roles. What are the key assumptions informing the design of our social safety net?
1: There are a couple of important assumptions. One is that most families have two parents, and most children will be raised in families that have two parents, which means that you can cover the needs of a family both in terms of earned income and in terms of unpaid care work and sort of family household running through these two people who might specialize or who might share both functions throughout their um, family life. Now, that, of course, has not been true for um, several decades in the United States. We have a lot of children are being raised in families um, that have only one parent. So all of that burden of earning income and then also all of the family work that goes into raising children and, and running a household, that's all on one person. The other assumption that is problematic is that we have to incentivize work by giving people the fear of total immiseration. I mean, we have to discipline people to, to work, to join the workforce by um, giving them nothing if they don't. Right. So many of our benefits for working families or for poor families are in the form of benefits that are conditional on work. And so we make these benefits a kind of an either-or thing. Either you are working and you don't get any benefits or you're not working and you get some meager benefits, but we don't in our system combine or allow families to combine work and income supplements very easily. And that's really a problem, especially given the amount of low-wage work um, there is out there for many of our citizens today.
0: So, speaking of that, assumption of, you know, maybe one parent who's earning and another who who might be have, have more of a caregiver role, obviously, typically the woman. What are your thoughts on basic income as it relates to uncompensated labor that typically happens within families?
1: Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. and But it really depends on how the basic income is structured. So we'll talk a lot about basic income in the abstract. I think it's important to specify that a basic income that's going to Help families and particularly to help uh, women headed families, um, which are the families in our country that are most vulnerable to poverty, needs to go to children as well as adults.
0: Sorry, just to clarify, when you say women headed families, do you mean like single mothers or um, like the woman is the primary wage earner or what do you mean?
1: By women headed family, I mean um, single parent families that are headed by women, nuclear families, they can also be households with perhaps different generations in them as well that are headed by women. And and female headed families and households are more than twice as likely to be in poverty as those headed by men.
0: That's very interesting. So yeah, you are getting into what a basic income should look like if we are actually factoring in these sorts of gender inequities.
1: Yeah, so for a a basic income to really address children's poverty and the poverty of uh, single parent households, it has to go to children as well as adults. You'd have to have a much higher basic income that, if it only goes to adults in order for it to um, alleviate the poverty of families in poverty. So let me just give you an example. The poverty line, the poverty threshold for a family of four in the United States is about $24,000. So if you have a family that is headed by a, a single mother and has three children, the basic income would have to be $24,000 a year in order for that family to be lifted out of poverty by the basic income. On the other hand, if the basic income were $6,000 a year but, were, but went to children as well as adults, that family of four would, would be over the poverty threshold with a basic income alone. So a basic income of $6,000 a year versus a basic income of $24,000 a year, $6,000 a year that goes to all children as well as adults, $24,000 that only goes to adults, that's a big, you know, big gap in that number. Similarly, if you had a basic income that was $12,000 a year, which is closer to what many people talk about when they talk about a basic income in the United States, basic income of $12,000 a year does lift an individual above the poverty threshold, but it doesn't lift a single parent-headed family above the poverty threshold if it doesn't go to children as well.
0: So uh, I noticed you you've done some research on social welfare systems, such as the Swedish system, where they provide... Uh, really robust social benefits, but not so much in the form of cash, but you know public education, universal health care, that sort of thing and you've studied these sorts of social benefit systems and what happens when the countries administering become larger and, and more diverse and so in thinking about how we might apply a basic income to the u s which is a very large diverse country, how should we? Think about those factors.
1: Yeah, you've raised an interesting point. There um, is definitely you know, more than one way uh, to take care of the needs of the populations of various countries. And so the um, Scandinavian welfare states, for example, have um, decided that the way they're going to do that is by providing a lot of benefits in kind. Uh, so national health care, easily available and uh, low cost child care subsidized housing, uh, a lot of job retraining, et cetera. I think that's a you know, fantastic system if you can get it. Uh, it is more difficult um, to have that kind of system in large, diverse countries than it is in smaller, more homogeneous countries. So the largest Scandinavian country is about the size of New York City in terms of population. they are no larger than 10 million people. I think there are different challenges when you're looking at a country um, that is very homogeneous in terms of ethnicity, race, religion, and one that is as diverse as our country is and as large as our country is. Um, I'm not sure exactly where the dividing line is. But it is true that most of these countries with very generous um, in kind social welfare systems are quite small. For another reason, they're unlikely to work in the United States. The United States is not only very large, um, both in terms of population and geographically, but it's also very diverse. So if you think of all the different religious traditions that are represented in the United States, I'm not sure that it really honors our tradition of being neutral among religions to say that we expect everyone to go to work, men and women, mothers and fathers, without regard to what their different religious traditions might uh, encourage them to do. I think that we're big enough, we're strong enough, and we benefit from the diversity that even if I might personally disagree with a religion that suggests that women should stay home to take care of children rather than men, I'm willing to be tolerant of that in this country. And I think that that's a a very rich and important part of our tradition. So I think both the religious and ethnic diversity that we have in this country and also the geographical diversity that we have, which means that, for example, in in Western states that are less um, densely populated than ours are, I'm not sure that the same kind of communal daycare System makes sense as it would in New York City, for example, where I live, where you know it would make a lot of sense and it would be great, be very useful. Um, there might be different solutions that uh, different communities in different geographical locations would bring to the same sorts of problems. And the the great thing about a basic income is that it gives everybody the resources to make those decisions and and try out different solutions for themselves.
0: So cash works no matter what, and you don't have to think about what sort of community you're you're working with when you're providing services, whether or not, you know, there are certain roles already within that community that provides those services, making them redundant or that kind of thing. Cash cash is cash.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that um, even among, you know, my friends, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a parent of two children and many of my friends don't like the idea of daycare. They prefer the idea of children being raised in their own home by somebody who is dedicated to that, um, that role. And that can be either one of the the parents, it can be a grandparent, it can be uh, a nanny who is hired just to look after that one child. I think it's fine for us to have different views about how those um, how our children should be be cared for. And cash is more fungible in that sense. It is um, it does enable us to come up with the solution that works best for us. And let's not forget also that so many of our workers now. Um, in the United States, work very irregular schedules. So, when you think about how do you provide the daycare for a, a night shift worker or for a retail worker who doesn't know what his or her schedule is more than a week in advance, you really you're starting to think about round the clock daycare to make this possible. Now, you know that's um, certainly something we can look at, but why not also think about whether we could perhaps support grandmothers or grandfathers who maybe don't have so much of their own retirement income but if they had access to a basic income plus um, you know, receive some of the basic income that's meant for a child could help participate in the childcare of their own grandchildren.
0: So thinking about all the the diverse cultures we have here in the U.S. and the various gender roles and whatever roles they have, one thing I find really interesting about the basic income is how it can empower people on an individual level. and. You know, maybe give them more flexibility in their lives than their society, whatever it is, would traditionally provide. I'm wondering if you thought about you know how that might play out in different ways,
1: yeah, certainly. Um you know, I said just a moment ago that I'm, i I want to be very tolerant of the diversity that we have in the United States. And while that's true, An individual basic income is also a little subversive of that diversity and we should be pretty honest about that. It does empower um, people within families who don't necessarily have an equal voice in their families already, whether that's because of religious traditions or ethnic or national uh, traditions or because of income disparities in the family. So a basic income does give everybody a little bit of economic voice within the family. uh, And that family can be a a husband-wife family or a partner family or can be vis-a-vis your your parents if you're just starting out in the world and your parents are also trying to exert some control over you. So yeah, um, an individual basic income gives everybody a little bit of something, a little bit of economic security, and that provides a little bit of a platform to make your own decisions.
0: Finally, in a recent episode, Jim and I got into a discussion about whether or not a basic income can solve poverty. So I know you've you've weighed in on this topic. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so absolutely. If what we're talking about is absolute poverty, a basic income can uh, eliminate absolute poverty in the United States. We just need to guarantee everybody an income that is at least as high as the income thresholds that we have designated in this country, which is a roughly $12,000 for an individual, and uh, you know, in scale to household size, up to about $24,000 for a family of war. That is absolutely within our reach, and it's uh, it's a, a shame on this country that we don't do it.
0: You mentioned very early on that the biggest objection you get around basic income, or one of the biggest, is that it's unconditional. You don't have to do anything. You just have to be a person. <laughs> so. How do you typically respond to people that raise that objection?
1: So I respond in a number of different ways, depending on whether I'm having a more philosophical conversation with somebody or whether I'm talking to uh, just kind of an ordinary citizen who's interested and a little skeptical about basic income.
0: So why don't we take the ordinary citizen, you know, perhaps you're just introducing the idea and they say, as the response I get all the time is what you just give them the money, you don't don't have to do anything. So what's your, your usual response?
1: So the idea that there's something wrong with just giving people money is based on the idea that the current distribution of income and wealth in the United States is just, you know, that it's right, that, that people who are rich are rich because they deserve to be, they've worked hard, and those who are poor aren't, um, uh, they're, they're, those who are poor um, deserve to be poor because they, they don't work very hard. I just think that that's patently false. And... Particularly if you take the gender perspective, is it really the case that men contribute more to our country than women do? Women who do almost all of the uh, childbearing and childrearing and care work in our society that makes it possible for uh, men and others to go into the workforce and earn money, that work is not compensated at all. So that's the first step is to just understand that the current distribution that we have is just, it's the distribution that's based on the particular set of rules that govern our market and govern property rights and taxation and inheritance. And those are up to us to to change and to to, to decide on actively as citizens. So the other way to look at it is to say, well, most people in the United States, and this is really true, the surveys um, show this, most people actually want to help the poor. They want to redistribute some income to the poor. The question is, is it effective to do it the way we do now, which is in a way that comes with so many conditions and is so meager that in fact, it doesn't achieve the goals that we've set for it. So many people who are eligible for income benefits don't even bother to apply anymore because the applications are so complicated the eligibility rules are complex, and often uh, people who are low-income or poor cycle in and out of eligibility to the extent that if they you know, take up a benefit and then they get a part-time job and they're no longer eligible, they can be penalized for having taken those benefits earlier. So it's a very complex system. It pays very low benefits, um, so it doesn't bring families out of poverty And what it means is that we're not investing in the next generation of workers who are going to be paying our social security taxes and who are going to be taking care of us and running the economy when they're older. So we're we're really not investing in that next generation. About one in four um, children live uh, at or below poverty, the poverty threshold in this country. 24%, one in four of our children it doesn't make any sense from an investment perspective right if you're just going to take off a cold hard investment perspective we're not investing in the people who are going to be the engines of economic wealth in the future so basic income is a way to do that and there are all sorts of uh reasons why it makes more sense to give people the money in a universal fashion not means tested not based on any of these conditions and then to tax away the benefit from people who, you know, at the end of the year, they didn't really need it because they were able to get a job that they paid them uh, much higher than the the poverty level income. So that would be similar to our social security system where, you know, if you're eligible for social security benefits, you get it. Those benefits are, some of those benefits are taxable if your total income exceeds um, a certain level at the end of the year that's the way to means test a basic income is to give it to everybody and then look at the total income at the end of the year and, and take it back from the people who really don't need it. Right.
0: And social security is considered, you know, such a, a bedrock of the American relationship between government and citizen. Um, at least it, it has for the last few generations. And so, yeah, I think we're we're still trying to get across that barrier with basic income, with ensuring that security for everyone.
1: So, you know, the interesting thing about social security is we sort of take it take its structure for granted, but social security gives benefits to people who didn't contribute, right? Because you can get a benefit as the spouse of a worker who contributed over the course of his or her lifetime.
0: Yeah, that's interesting.
1: Right. And that's a that's a great feature of social security. We assume that social security is somehow earned and deserved, in fact it isn't. And and that's part of why it's been so successful at reducing poverty among the elderly. The elderly used to be the largest demographic group in poverty in the United States. After the social security program was implemented and particularly when it was expanded in the 60s, the um, elderly are now the demographic group in the United States with the lowest rate of poverty. It's 100% because of social security.
0: We, we tend to shy away from bombarding people with statistics because they don't, you know, glom on in, in a, the way a story does. But I think that's a very powerful little statistic, both that and the fact that, like you said, 24% of children in America are, are in poverty. It's, it's just stunning.
1: And of course, you know, that poverty rate for children is twice as high for uh, African-American children. And again we really think that with our history of slavery in this country that African-Americans deserve the poverty level that they have? Or do we not think that some of their labor was stolen? Some of their opportunities to accumulate capital and property were prevented over the hundreds of years that they were enslaved and then discriminated against after slavery? You know, it just doesn't make sense to think that the current distribution that we have is somehow fair and just and equitable and any amount of redistribution would be unfair.
2: That was Owen interviewing Alma Zalecki, Associate Professor of Political Science at NYU Shanghai. I thought Alma's point about how important it is that basic income goes to children if we want to actually lift everyone out of poverty was interesting. I think oftentimes that comes up whether we we should provide the children but it's seen more as like oh like Do we go this way or that way? Not not necessarily as being something that's really core to a particular outcome of the policy, but I mean, her point makes a lot of sense that if if we look at poverty level and and what it costs to live, if someone has a couple kids and you're only giving money to adults, that probably is not actually going to be enough to make ends meet if we've really set a universal amount for everyone
0: yeah it's true kids do get dropped from the equation pretty quickly in a lot of basic income proposals so it was good to hear someone standing up for you know the child allowance concept or just including kids in the basic income i also thought it was really interesting a point that resonated with me is how a basic income is subversive because it empowers everyone equally the people who are less empowered by society inherently are getting a larger proportionate boost and so well, it is this kind of blanket universal program that doesn't seem to have any opinion about who deserves, uh, I mean, that that lack of opinion is itself
2: very subversive. Yeah, I think that's, we, we, we really haven't talked about this much at all, but I, I think that's that's a point I've heard brought up before, particularly as it relates to different cultures in different countries, that it, we, we have to some degree taken it as a given that it is important to empower individuals in the United States. That's there. There are places where that's there is discrepancies on that, but as an overall society perspective, that's that's really taken as as a, right, a yeah, pretty it's a common value. Yeah, but that is certainly not true in other countries. And so, looking at this abroad, I, I think you it, it's much more apparent how it's subversive in, in certain cultures. But, yeah, I thought her point about how even even in the U.S., there's there's definitely going to be an element of that if, if we do make this happen. And the, the other piece that really stood out for me was, was her point on deservedness. And we do still attach this idea that how much you get paid is how much you're worth. That is just so ingrained. And even as we've seen how not true that is in compensation over past decades and, and how We've really had this, this massive shift. People get incredibly w- rich over a couple of years. Some other people toil their entire lives and are still struggling to get by. Um, but we actually have perhaps an even more drastic and clear example of of how that just doesn't make any sense through these traditionally gendered roles, and and how someone staying home and taking care of their kids gets nothing. And so that person, by, by this common de- definition we're using, has no value.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, that, that whole idea of compensation equals deservedness very much relies on a stable nuclear family because once you mess with that to any degree, then, um, then you really have to readjust your equation uh, because yeah, caretaking work is it's the most important work or some of the most important work that anyone
2: does and, and yeah, it's, within a family, it's entirely uncompensated. Well, that'll do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please do make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast service of your choice. And do tell your friends about it. We are always looking for new listeners. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson, and we will talk to you next time.